You're listening to a resource from Jamboree Anglican Church. Uh, tonight, we're going to do this third sermon. The whole series is called Power and Hope. Don't know if, you, if you're brand new here, if you haven't heard the previous sermons, but there's been two so far on One Kings from the Old Testament. Um, tonight, uh, I'm calling this The Seeds of Destruction. And you can see that I'm covering two, two chapters. I'm not going to read it all, but we're going to look at the, uh, the main, main parts. I hope to get the points across uh, to you. Um, looking around, I wonder, um, does everybody know, if I talk about records, you know, those black things that spin round and round, who, who knows what they mean? So, yeah, my opinion is about records. <laughs> so, uh, we're going back. We're talking, first of all, I've got a couple of stories of bad mistakes because uh, in tonight's uh, sermon, um, Solomon, for all his undoubted potential and greatness, made a couple of bad mistakes. Back in uh, 1962, which, before some of you were born anyway, when there were records, um, Decca, a record label in England, uh, wanted to sign up um, a young band with potential um, to, as a, to a recording contract. And uh, two young bands showed up. They were both guitar bands. Uh, one was a five-piece, one was a four-piece. And uh, played for Decca, they showed them their stuff, and they decided to sign um, Brian Poole and the Tremolos, and um, they rejected the others, said, go, go home and do a bit more practice. We won't, we're not going to sign you to our company anyway. Um, that four-piece outfit actually came from Liverpool, and they are the Beatles, so uh, that was a bad mistake, number one. So bad mistake number two tonight was a little bit more recent. In 1995, there was this young lady, she was pretty broke at the time, she was actually a single mother with a child and so on, and she'd written a book, she did the rounds of 12 um, book publishing companies, hoping to get a, a publisher for her book, uh, who, who would print for me and see if I can get some money. Whatever. She had 12 knockbacks before the Bloomsbury Book Company said, OK, we'll print your book, uh, which just so happened it was called Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. That lady made, made about a billion dollars, a lot of money for the company, so you can make some bad mistakes, as you can see. And like I said earlier tonight, we're going to see some bad mistakes uh, that King Solomon made. And the first uh, point tonight is uh, Solomon's marriages. Uh, shortly after he became king, uh, Solomon had a wedding. Now, it doesn't specify, but I don't think this was his first. I think he had several weddings. As you read on through the Book of Kings, he had an awful lot of weddings. But anyway, he had a wedding. So our text reads, and by all means, if you've got a Bible or you want to bring a Bible along, because we're covering a lot of text tonight, and you can kind of skim your Bible. You might have it on your phone, for instance. Uh, I suspect some of you do. Uh, we see there in uh, the beginning of uh, 1 Kings chapter 3 that Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and married one of his daughters. By the way, Pharaoh had lots too. Um, he had lots of wives and lots of daughters. Probably, probably glad to get rid of one of them. So uh, He brought her to live in the city of David. city of David's the, the old name for Jerusalem. Until he could finish building his palace in the temple of the Lord uh, and the wall around the city. At that time, the people of Israel sacrificed their offerings at local places of worship. So keep your eye on that. We're going to talk about the local places of worship tonight. Uh, for a temple honouring the name of the Lord 
had not yet been built. By the way, they did have the tent of worship, and I don't know what was wrong with going to the tent of worship, but it does make the comment they hadn't built the, the main temple at Jerusalem, had not yet been built. Solomon loved the Lord and followed all the decrees of his father David, except that Solomon too offered sacrifices and burned incense at the local places of worship. The most important of these places of worship was Gibeon. So the king went there and sacrificed a thousand burnt offerings. Now in there, there were, there were a few bad mistakes along the way. The first one was that Solomon married uh, Pharaoh's daughter, marrying a lady from another country. You might say, well, that's, that's pretty average in Australia these days. Lots of multicultural marriages around in our own family. We've got a Korean daughter-in-law, so that's pretty normal these days. But in those days, religion was tied up with what country you came from. And marrying an Egyptian princess meant bringing the gods of Egypt into God's country, into amongst God's people. And if you're following me through uh, on the notes in the sermon, by marrying... The Egyptian princess, Solomon... Oh, I didn't, didn't put the words in. Solomon brought... I'm going to say the words. So Sorry about that. I'm, I'm not terribly a regular preacher. I seem to miss this. Solomon brought the gods of Egypt into Israel. So that, that's, what, that's what I'm sure you can get that one. So that was uh, bad mistake number one. He started to bring foreign gods, uh, gods which are not the true gods. Now, later on, uh, as Solomon goes through life, uh, we read... I'm not clicking. Well, I'm pushing the button, but it's not going on. I might need some help from the back. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. Can I have that slide up? I don't know what's gone wrong with my clicker. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. Despite, despite besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sodom. These are countries around Israel and from among the Hittites. The Lord had clearly instructed... I'm going to try the clicker again... Yep, worked that time. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they'll turn your hearts to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 kind. This is by the, by the end, not, not the day he married the Egyptian princess. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. Well, we'll get to in the sermon to chapter 11. Jody can probably do that, I guess. So Solomon made a partnership with the Egyptians. Who you'll remember were their former slave masters, and thereby he brought foreign gods into the midst of God's people. So we're not off to a good start. And just by the way, you might be wondering some of the Old Testament commandments, how they work out in the life of the New Testament believer. The Old Testament commandment not to not marry a person with foreign gods is updated in the New Testament when Paul says uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but only if he loves the Lord. And there Paul is indicating that Christians ought to marry Christian people because it's bringing a foreign God into the family, as is seen from having just one, one God in the family. So in our notes, a Christian is only free to marry another 
Christian is the missing word there. Sorry, I've missed those. Oh, I guess this is going to happen all the way through my sermon. A Christian is only free to marry another Christian. And here's these verses up again on our, on our screen. And the second mistake we see is that at that time, the people of Israel sacrificed their offerings at the local places of worship. The temple honouring the name of the Lord had not yet been built. Solomon loved the Lord. He followed the decrees of his father David, except that Solomon too offered sacrifices and burnt incense at the local places of worship. Now the situation in Israel is that the people of God were using the old pagan places of sacrifices, the old pagan shrines. So before Israel conquered the promised land, they'd of course been, you know your Old Testament history, they were slaves in Egypt, Uh, they marched through the desert, they conquered the land. Uh, There were of course other nations living there before them who had to be defeated. And these nations worshipped their own gods. Mostly they were gods of fertility and gods of the weather, you know, to pray to the god to send the rain that they needed or to pray to the god of fertility to make sure they had plenty of wheat or the cattle had plenty of calves that year, that sort of thing. And they had stone altars dotted around the country uh, for their pagan sacrifices. And it does rather seem that the people of Israel had actually taken over these old pagan shrines and used the stone altars already there, but now they'd sort of repurposed them uh, for sacrifices to the God of Israel. But as I mentioned earlier, they did have the tent of worship. Uh, It's not... They haven't built the temple yet in Jerusalem, but what's wrong with exclusively using the tent of worship as provided by God, yet all over the place they were going to various pagan uh, shrines and reusing them in one way or another. You can imagine how easy it is to mix pagan religion in when you go to such places. I'm sure it was happening. <clears throat> so they were meant to go to the tent of worship. This was the tent which they'd uh, built on the way to the promised land, which they could knock down at night and travel with them the next day, put it up in the new place. It had the altar in it, it had the Ark of the Covenant in it, so forth. It's where they were supposed to do their sacrifices through the Old Testament priests of Levi and so on. So the bad mistake that Solomon and the people are making is mixing true religion with false religion. Example, what would it be today? We probably don't have pagan shrines around, dotted around Jamboree and what not to go and do sacrifices. But <clears throat> example I can think of would be uh, you go to a, a Christian goes to a Bible study group and finds out how to live um, according to God's word. And God's word gives us as much as we need to know of the future because the future is bound by the promises of God. So the promise of the return of Jesus, the promise of eternal life, the promise of the Holy Spirit to be with us, that temptations can't overtake us and ruin our faith in the end, those sort of things. So we have the word of God for guidance and the future is bound up and we can follow it that way. So a Christian goes to a Bible study along those lines, but then, then they go home, they read the star signs or consult some sort of astrology or some sort of modern pagan type religion to try and get some guidance for the future. So he says, what, what do you believe? Do you believe in God's word or do you believe in star signs for the future? So in our notes on our page, Christians must only have one God and one source of guidance. 
one source of guidance. So, for example, you must not mix God and his word with star signs. You must not mix God and his word with star signs. And Israel was mixing pagan worship, as done by the previous residents of the land, with true worship, as shown to them by the true God. So there were some bad mistakes going on. But then things seem to improve a bit. Second point tonight, we look at Solomon at worship, and we're up to chapter 3. We're still looking at some of the same verses, actually. We're getting a few points out of this this initial block in the Bible. Now, as, as I said earlier, we're used to thinking of Jerusalem with its temple and all the sacrifices happening there at the temple. But as I said before, the Jerusalem temple hadn't yet been built. Uh, It was going to be built later by Solomon. And on the day that Solomon became king, the tent uh, was still in use. And actually, it wasn't wasn't in Jerusalem. It was just outside uh, Jerusalem uh, at a place called Gibeah, about 10 miles north. So I think if you have a look on the map, I hope it's big enough for you to see Jerusalem and a place called Gibeon, which is just due north of it. And in today's passage, we see that King Solomon went to Gibeon to worship, it says. And I had to do a little bit of reading in the text here and and digging around the Bible and trying to work out exactly what he was doing up there at Gibeon. Did he go to the tent of worship or did he go to one of the pagan shrines? It takes a bit of research. But the fact that uh, a thousand burnt offerings were sacrificed and then God appeared that night in a dream to Solomon... So in my mind, it convinced me that Solomon was using the tent of worship, though we see the Bible says there was an old pagan altar also there at Gibeon. They were both there, maybe even side by side, but they were both there. Uh, Verse 4 says, the most important of these places of worship was at Gibeon, so the king went there and sacrificed a thousand burnt offerings, meaning I think he went to the tabernacle at Gibeon. Uh, not that he went to the high place, the pagan shrine. So that's Solomon at worship. So we come to the third point. He seems to be on the right track now. And the third point is Solomon's wisdom. Now our text says that in verse 5, that night the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream and said, what do you want? Ask and I will give it to you. So basically, God is giving Solomon a blank check here. Says God to Solomon, ask whatever you want. Now this, by the way, might seem like a recipe for disaster. God tells Solomon he can have anything he wants. Go ahead and ask. So in theory, Solomon could answer back to God, I would like the equivalent of a million dollars, millions and millions of dollars, whatever it was in those days, and I want to be king over the entire known world, not just this little tiny bit of it, so to make me into a great hero sort of thing. So it could be a recipe for disaster, we look at it that way, but we must realise that God knew Solomon well enough to know that Solomon wouldn't ask for such things. But Solomon was aware of being the ruler of God's people and would ask accordingly. It's something like the situation we find ourselves in as Christians. Uh, John's Gospel, chapter 15 uh, and verse 7, Jesus says, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, says Jesus, you may ask for anything you want. It's a bit like God and Solomon. Ask whatever you want. 
and it will be granted, says Jesus. So surely no true Christian will want millions of dollars and to be in charge of the whole world. And God makes this promise to us in Jesus because God knows that because we belong to him, he knows that because Jesus died for our sins, because heaven awaits us, because we love and respect God so much, we would find it simply impossible to demand things like, you know, the huge amounts of money and the power to hurt and destroy people or for God to make us into tyrannical rulers of the world, that sort of thing. And back in Solomon's day, God knew Solomon well enough to know he could be trusted with this wide open offer, I'll give you anything you want. And Solomon didn't let God down. He asked God for wisdom. Solomon says this, it's sort of like a praise, talking to God. Now, O Lord my God, you've made me king instead of my father. That's David, of course, you remember from last week. But I'm like a little child who doesn't know his way around. And here I am in the midst of your own chosen people, a nation so great and numerous they cannot be counted. Give me an understanding heart so that I can govern your people well and know the difference between right and wrong. For who by himself is able to govern this great people of yours? That's uh, 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 7 and 9. So Solomon said, oh, I know my limitations. I'm actually, in the matter of being king of God's people, I'm really more like a child than an adult. I need your help. I need God-given wisdom to govern the people and to know the difference between right and wrong. Because in Old Testament Israel, if two people had a dispute, then the king was the final court of appeal. It wasn't a very big nation, and towns weren't very big. Even when Jesus was on earth, and Nazareth is, it's believed that Nazareth is a, a place of about 500 people. They've excavated the place, and they've seen where the, the roads and the houses would have been. It's estimated only about 500 people lived in Nazareth. So everything was quite small in these days, and the king would personally settle disputes the difficult disputes between people. He was the final court of appeal. They didn't have a system of legal courts and lawyers and judges like we do today. And straight away, as we read on in our Bible, we get an example of Solomon's wisdom and his ability to do just that, to discern right from wrong. And there's two women with one baby alive and there's one baby dead. And if you have a look at your notes... Uh, there's some spaces to, f- to fill in. Here, here's, here goes a story. There were two ladies who, who shared a house and each lady had a baby. And one of these babies sadly died during the night. One of these babies died. And when its mother rolled on top of it, actually, and it suffocated, so she's pretty clumsy. I think maybe she'd had too much to drink or something. But she woke up and realised what she'd done... So she quickly switched the babies over. So she now had the other woman's living baby and the other woman had the dead baby. But of course, uh, the woman, the other woman, recognised immediately what had happened. She woke up. There's a ding-dong argument about whose baby it was. And in the notes, the ladies present themselves before King Solomon for the final judgement. And of course, the king couldn't tell which one was telling the truth, which one was lying. And, he, and so he merely said, well, and here's the shocking bit of this, the sermon tonight. He just said, oh, cut the baby in half and give them half each, which sounds shockingly cruel. But with his God-given wisdom, Solomon knew exactly what would happen next. Verse 26 and 27. 
King Solomon said, cut the living baby in two and you have half each. 26 and 27, the woman who was the real mother of the living child, who loved him very much, of course, cried out, oh no, my Lord, give her the child, don't kill him. The other woman said, all right, it'll be neither yours nor mine, divide him between us. Then the king said, do not king kill the child, but give him to the woman who wants him to live. For she is his mother. So Solomon had asked for wisdom, and God had given him wisdom. This was a dramatic example of the king judging between right and wrong and giving justice to his people. So in our notes, here we have King Solomon at his best. Here is King Solomon at his best. Now we'll have a look at chapter 4, which has lots of details, which we're not going to go into all the details, but just want to get, get the main, main idea across if I can. And this is all about the new look Israel, which Solomon was creating. Now you probably know that Israel was a nation of 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel and all that. These 12 tribes, of course, uh, correspond to the 12 sons of Jacob. And there's a map, and when they came to the land, uh, it was Joshua who divided the land into 12 sections, and each tribe had their section. You don't have to know which one exactly. You can always look this up in a book, but anyway, there they are with different colours in them. That was about 350 or so years before King Solomon. So if you're interested in the dates of where we are on the timeline of history, King David is about 1050 BC. So King Solomon's about 1000 BC. So 350 years earlier brings us to Joshua at 1350 BC, the conquest of the land, division into the 12 tribes, and then King Solomon, we're up to about 1000 BC. And the narrative in chapter 4 tells about how King Solomon organised his land when he became king. So I'm not going to read this out. You can read this through to yourselves while I'm just generally rabbiting on out here. We get the names here of the leading state officials. Uh, as I say, read that through. And I've never met anyone who thought they could explain the exact importance of each person, uh, though each one was no doubt a worthy person doing their job well. There they are, there's their names, and they, they did this job and they did that job and they did something else. So I'm not going to worry about the fine details there. But verse 7 is worth looking at because it reveals something going on that I think is not right. There's a few more of those people here. Then one guy was the manager of the property and someone else was in charge of the labour and so on. Da, da, da. Solomon also had 12 district governors who were over all Israel. They were responsible for providing food for the king's household. Each of them arranged provisions for one month of the year. So we can figure this out. 12 districts, 12 governors. Each district is on duty for one whole month of the year. They've got to send food and labour up to the royal establishment at Jerusalem. So uh, they're going to build the palace, they're going to build the temple, they're going to do all these things. There's a, all the horses, all the people, all the hangers on, that sort of stuff. Lots of food, lots of work is required. But, and there's a big but here. Now, instead of the 12 tribes equally sharing in all the benefits of, of Israel 
and all the work needed and all the, the support of Israel that's needed, there's now 12 districts, not 12 tribal areas. So here's someone, there's a guy called Ben Deccan, he was in those areas. And then there's Ben Hesed, you can see those for yourself, I'm not going to read them all out. He had that area. Now these are, these are the old tribal areas. There are other areas. There's this guy here. Benadab, this uh, guy called Barna. Uh, I don't think he's a, an ancestor of Eric Barna, the actor, but anyway, he was there. Uh, he had those areas there. <coughs> and what's worth noting when you get it pointed out to you, it happened to me when I did my preparation from a commentary, I couldn't work this out, but someone pointed it out to me, is the fact that these men have not been put in charge of the old tribal areas by Solomon, but in fact Solomon, or someone working under Solomon's authority, which amounts to the same thing, has reconfigured the internal boundaries of Israel so that the people are mostly no longer organised by their tribal boundaries but by new, artificially created boundaries. So the structure of the nation is at least being somewhat changed and the boundaries of the 12 districts don't correspond very much with the boundaries of the original 12 tribes. Oh, there was another bit about this guy did that. And there from my little commentary is a map, and I got Keanu to colour them in, and there's Benjamin coloured in down the bottom, light blue. Well, I can barely see it, it's light blue. It's just above the, sea, the Dead Sea. And there's Sebulun and Naphtali, if my memory's right. And they are the same, but everything else is changed. The other districts are shown in there. Somebody, somebody had all the trouble tracing out those areas. So this is where it was, this is where this guy had this bit, this guy had this bit, and so on. And on a map also, part of the land is completely missing. One of part of Israel is not part of the 12 districts. And the significance of the one part completely missing is that it is Judah, the southernmost tribe, that is missing. So in the roll call of those 12 districts, who each have to put up for one month and support everything that Solomon's doing in Jerusalem, the southernmost part, Judah, is, is not mentioned at all. All it says in the scripture is there was also one governor over the land of Judah. That's sort of like a footnote. They, they had a governor too. But they didn't have to, apparently, as you read it, they didn't have to put in uh, one month of the year. They, they just got off scot-free, which is telling us that Judah down south, it was the southernmost tribe, wasn't part of the 12 districts that paid for the royal house. Uh, what's the significance of that? Well, I think it's another mistake from Solomon. He already married an Egyptian princess, and so he set himself on the pathway of bringing foreign gods into God's nation, as we saw. Now we see that he makes the larger northern part of the nation pay all the expenses of the royal court, and that little southern bit of Judah doesn't have to contribute. Now surely this is the beginning of the friction between Judah in the south and the northern tribes of Israel, which when Solomon dies, they split into two. Israel says to, uh, take care of yourself, Judah, we're going to go off and have our own king, we're not going to be part of you anymore. It all starts here with Solomon when he lets Judah off scot-free and they don't have to contribute at all, I believe. The northern Israel versus the southerners, Judah. So here's Solomon's mistakes. Uh, we saw him at his best with the, the wisdom thing, the child and all that. 
but there were mistakes. He married an Egyptian princess and thus brought foreign gods into Israel. He, secondly, tolerated the old pagan shrines and places of sacrifices. Thirdly, he reorganised Israel internally, getting rid of most of the old tribal boundaries. Fourthly, southern Judah did not have to contribute to the expenses of the royal household. So it's a real mixed bag, is King Solomon. He asked for wisdom, as we saw, and God gave him wisdom, but he still didn't measure up to what God wanted in a king. How could such a wise man make such a mess? So our conclusion uh, tonight is that even a large dose of God-given wisdom won't get a person successfully to the task of being God's king over God's people. But out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He'll delight in obeying the Lord. He'll not judge by appearance, nor make a decision based on hearsay. Make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word. And one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. And you probably don't need me to tell you it's going to be the eternal Son of God who is incarnated of the man Jesus Christ, who's the only one who can be the sort of king that God wants for God's people. Thank you for listening to this resource from Jembrew Anglican Church. For more information, head to jembrewanglican.com.